Hey everyone, Vancouver Radio. I hope you are all having an awesome day. Uh, I know I say this a lot. I can't wait to interview today's guest. And I can't wait because this show leans hugely on personal development, becoming your best self, living an awesome life. And a big part of that is us as individuals feeling like we have control of our decisions feeling like we have agency in our lives, feeling like we can bring our best, purest self to the world, to our lives, to our family, to our friends, to the workplace. And I love stories where you get to hear someone come through so much and do so much, especially at a young age. And it makes you stand there and think, oh, wow, like, what excuses am I really making? So uh, I will introduce uh, today's guest in a second. I'll go through the bio very quickly, which I know I don't do. I usually um, ask the guest, but I've got it in front of me and it sounds jazzy. Um, the individual I'm going to be speaking to today has suffered poverty, PTSD-ridden parents uh, as a result of the Falklands, uh, young grief, suicide in the family, uh, but off the back of that has experienced some amazing highs. Uh, Scotland's first apprentice management consultant and was recognised as the best apprentice by, I'm assuming uh, it's not written here, but Scotland's governing body. Uh, this individual won overall UK Apprentice of the Year 2020. This individual founded and chaired two social enterprises at KPMG. And if you're aware of that, KPMG are just a colossal uh, business. Uh, Scotland Mobility Scotland and our pioneering UK social mobility network of 500 staff. So that's what that social enterprise is. Alongside Meeting the Queen, presented with Katie Piper, uh, Marcus Rashford. And there's some other names here I'm not going to say because I don't actually know who they are, but who they are, sorry, but I'm assuming they are uh, impressive. He's got his own podcast, which I'm sure we'll mention at the end. David McIntosh, hello. Mate, I can't believe I'm on... Ben Coomber Radio, like I said to you before this, like I feel like I know who you are through the ridiculous amount of episodes that I've uh, consumed of yours, and it's a very surreal moment to be here at the other side of the camera with you, mate, on the other side of the mic. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and the beautiful thing is about the internet and podcasting is we get to hear more about you, which I don't know a lot about, but you sent me a cold email or a LinkedIn message, and I was like, oh, this guy's story is interesting. Let's get this guy on a pod. It's so strange. Like, I, I don't know about your experience with recording so far, but it's sometimes the people that haven't shared their story in too many domains that bring most value because, for example, on my show, I've had some big guests, but they have been media trained and their, their stories very out the box. But sometimes when you just give someone space, when you open the sale instead of closing the sale, um, you find that the stories are a bit more emotive. Um, so a, a reflection of my podcast, I've found uh, the greatest guests being the ones that have shared their story for the first few times. Mm. And it's almost like this purity in listening to someone almost fumble through the story. And like, you know, they're having realizations as they're, you know, they're recollecting it and you can hear the emotion and, you know, maybe there's a tremor in their voice when they're feeling a little bit emotional about one. And that that's connection. And also, you know, let's let's look at a couple of people we might look up to. You might have heard their story seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven times. And it's like, you know, 
as you say, it's a bit media trained, it's off the tongue. And even when I go through my story, I have in the back of my mind, like, oh my God, I've, I've told this story, you know, 200 times now, like, can I keep it unique? Can I keep it interesting? Can I, can I weave it? So totally agree. And I suppose I can't wait to delve into yours. I can't wait to share it, mate. <laughs> so I suppose, where do we start? Um, one of the things that you love doing is you love literally just telling your story from start to finish. Um, it sounds like in the past, you've had a fairly rough time. Stuff has happened, didn't grow up in a what people would class as an ideal socioeconomic background. Um, start from the beginning, because I know that you're going to speak passionately about start and finish. Well, I loved that you brought me on to talk about agency and I could just, I guess, unpick that from a kind of technical point of view, but I guess to bring it to life, maybe sharing my story from front to back might kind of bring it to life more organically. So I was born in the west coast of Scotland, if you can't tell by my voice already. Um, born to my dad, David McIntosh Sr. and my mum, Pauline Clark. And I guess my dad, will he was the youngest in a poor family. He was born up in a town called Kilmarnock, which was once identified as the most deprived in Scotland. And we spoke about me being dis disadvantaged, but I kind of move away from using the term disadvantage only because I had 10x the privileges that he might have. He grew up in a domestically abusive family. He did a, like a milk run from the age of eight. Um, he slept in a bed with his five siblings without duvets and wore workwear jackets to keep them warm. So that's when I really reflect on using that term um, less uh, disadvantaged and move towards maybe less privileged and then on the contrary to that my mum was um, the youngest in a large but poor family she was like this wonderful flamboyant woman who didn't leave her family nest until her probably 30s making her an older mother um, and I think she was kind of hardwired complacent um, and a little bit cushioned leaving her out of low leaving her out of employment throughout my childhood um, without much existential purpose or drive. Um, my dad suffered losing his own dad in his 20s. He suffered losing his brother um, from uh, suicide. He lost my twin um, through a premature birth um, and probably suffered every aftermath of war or conflict being a Falklands veteran. He was a hero that once guarded Buckingham Palace, guarded at Princess Diana's wedding, even has a commendation of bravery for saving lives in a London fire. But now if I look at him, he looks broken, forgotten, a little bit unemployed, uh, a little bit, um, so broken, forgotten, and um, a little bit in despair, I'd say, because um, he's not got this existential purpose, just like I said with my mum. But kind of on the topic that we're speaking about, I, I literally seen them as a kid um, kind of settle for the hand of cards they were given by life and watch them never check to see if there was an ace in the pack. And there's a great sense of perhaps gratitude in this approach, right? Appreciating everything that you're given. But at this moment, I realized a lot about what we see in the social mobility landscape. I spoke about gratitude. And the reason I mentioned that is because more often than not, we see people from a background like mine having this kind of sense of imposter syndrome where they get to somewhere and think, okay, I'm grateful to be in this circumstances. I should not be in this crowd. I am, I am an imposter here. And when I'm here, I better not disrupt. 
oh, I better not disrupt him. By disruption, that might mean bringing my whole self to that challenge because I might just get caught out and lose that one chance. Um, but I guess my mum and dad suffered immensely from mental health conditions. My mum and dad would probably denote that to their financial circumstances, financial anxiety, financial depression, I'd say. Um, and I think my sister and I both kind of suffered indirectly from that. We were told as children, again, not to ask for money at the weekend to go to the cinema because that's disruption. We had to be careful. And I kind of started to see that transgress throughout my career. Um, but at this moment, at this very ju juvenile moment in time, I started wanting to change that. I wanted to be the exact opposite of what my mom and dad had become. Um, so what I did was I started selling, it's a very Scottish term, tablet, which is like a cake made out of like sugar and condensed milk. I used to sell that around the houses um, and I would probably make some change and some coins at a net loss. But I had this money in my hand and I went to an uncle somewhere and showed him my collective revenue and he said, David, you're good at counting that money. You could be an accountant. They make a lot of money. And as you can imagine, like after hearing all my mom and dad's collective financial related um, mental health conditions, I was like, this is my way out of here. This is where I have ultimate agency. I need to make a lot of money and accountants do that. So I'm going to be an accountant. And then the one, tra I realized that the one trait that everyone has is one of these kind of collective universal traits is the desire to feel important. So I had finally this, this, uh, this kind of desire satisfied by saying, I'm going to be an accountant. Accountants make a lot of money. Therefore, if I espouse to be an accountant, I am important. So I went to my next door neighbor whose mom was from the exact same demographic as me, Ben. And I said to her, she said to me, sorry, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, an accountant with my chest pumped out like this. I said, an accountant. And she said, but your mom and dad aren't smart or your mom and dad didn't go to university or your mom and dad are unemployed. How could you be an accountant? And for me, the blinkers were on. This is my most high agency moment, I would say, because I self-predicated my entire school based on that one remark. I think I was, I did like an open university course when I was in secondary school. I hassled every local accountancy firm for work experience and they all said no. So I looked online at the Social Mobility Foundation a wonderful UK charity that basically bridges the gap between someone like me and opportunity. The way I describe social mobility for anyone who's listening and might be unfamiliar with the term, the David McIntosh definition is the amount of ease or friction between an individual and awareness and access to opportunity. The amount of friction or ease between an individual to access and awareness of opportunity. And they provided that for me. Um, so they took me to London for the first time. Um, at the age of 15. I I'd never ventured outside of Scotland before. I used to go on family holidays paid by local charities to um, caravan parks that are less than the distance than I travel for work now. Um, but went to London for the very first time in a pre-mark suit that was paid for me. And I felt important. I saw the shiny buildings of London. I wore a suit. I got to meet people that were, I guess, that self-actualized version of myself five, three years ago. Um, that kind of archetype of a middle-aged, middle-class man in a suit. But I didn't also just see him. I saw people just like me. 
I realized that someone like me could belong there. Um, so I guess I applied for the apprenticeship program thereafter um, and I didn't get in the first time round. And through resilience, I then um, reapplied. And talking about identity capital and creating your own identity and embracing your identity, there was a really stark moment in my, my uh, life where I realized that by not embracing my true self, I would be ultimately hindered. And that's when I got offered a job at KPMG in Edinburgh. And if you know where Edinburgh is, it's on the East Coast. And I live in the very West Coast of Scotland. And I could have, I could have moved across the country, but I would need startup capital, would need like a thousand pounds deposit for a flat. I would need clothes on my back. I would need money to be self-sufficient for the first month. And a big organization like KPMG, well, they could provide that to me. Surely they could give me a NatWest loan or a HSBC loan for a couple grand and I'd pay it over a year. But I didn't present to them that I was facing these challenges. I didn't present to them that the, the playing field wasn't quite level in terms of my, 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 my upbringing. So I said, oh, I can't make it this year, X, Y, Z excuse. Can I please start next year in Glasgow? And so I did. But perhaps if I presented that true self to the organization at that one moment in time, they would realize that this is a collective problem. Not everyone has the same access and awareness to opportunity, but how can we give a quality of opportunity opposed to a quality of outcome? So I joined the firm eventually and I was like, I need to give back to this cause. Uh, so I joined as an, uh, as an apprentice on this accounting program, spent three years rotating around the business whilst also um, doing some social mobility volunteering back with the same program that once helped me. And my whole career was predicated on that one remark. How could you be an accountant? And also accountants make a lot of money. You could be an accountant. But unfortunately, when I was um, the mere age of 21, my mum passed away suddenly. And not only did she pass away, Ben, my full identity passed away. The whole reason I wanted to make a lot of money was to give her the simplistic delights that the neighbours had. So when she passed away, that nurse star died too. So I spent a lot of time in solitude and my bereavement leave. I spent a lot of time meditating, journaling, and doing what I call um, the process of creating high quality thoughts. And I believe to create high quality thoughts, Ben, there's four steps and you can start at any part of the cycle. But I would recommend by consuming content that you care about and you're interested about. And then conversing that content with like-minded like -minded individuals and then discussing it collaboratively, brainwriting, brainstorming and creating new ideas, theologies and feelings. And then going into a meditative state or a moment of reflection and basically creating your own flavor of those discussions based on the content you previously consumed. And then lastly, the last step of that is cementing it to, into existence, whether that's journaling, podcasting. And by doing that, that process for me in my bereavement leave, I realized that I didn't want to be a rich accountant. I just wanted to do good for others. And then that led on to me um, eventually starting the Social Mobility Scotland Network. Uh, and then that transgressed into the UK Social Mobility Network. So hopefully that's a good timeline of my career to this moment then. it is and uh firstly well done legend um and hopefully you already have the interest of the listener thinking cool um but obviously there's a lot of gaps in that 
and when we talk about agency what we have to understand or draw from your stories where did that agency come from because nowhere in your story where was there actually a gap for that to have happened that I've just from what I've just listened to so you grew up in a non-ideal situation parents didn't ask for much want for much didn't have high aspirations from what you described um everyone around you was saying you know you can't do that you know it's almost like you know we don't you don't deserve that because you haven't been brought up in that that's not what people from our place do so where what inspired you where did the thoughts come from because it's got to have come from somewhere was it deep within like i want to know what the stimulus was so one of the huge problems within social mobility is concealment and that's because of the detrimental effect that has on role modeling unlike other characteristics you can't see class so for me, um, I have this philosophy of having one true connection and just having one person that sits within the realm that you want to sit within and using them, not for a handout, but for a hand up. And it's a shame because I never, I didn't have role models growing up. My dad was a hero, but not in the domain that I wanted to aspire to. So I looked online to Gary Vaynerchuk's of the world, podcast hosts, authors, very verbose content that was out there. And lucky enough that I was so driven at some point to read books and stuff like that that I could understand that um so I think digital content for me finding digital role models hearing people's stories that were universally available on the web people that came from a background like mine I could relate to that and I thought well if they can do it then I can do it but you're right there is a dichotomy within this environment where there is people that fall into the, ta- the, the traits and the behaviors and the circle of life as their parents and there is a minute uh, amount of people that want to flip their d- DNA uh, and I think having a role model is the catalyst for that just being able to have that visibility of someone just like you doing something that you want to do uh, and for me that was probably my uncle the, the very uncle that said oh accountants make a lot of money you could be an accountant because he came from a background like mine but worked in a bank somewhere mm. and that gave me a visibility that someone like me could belong there uh, and just like when I went to London I also found a mentor at the firm who came from a background like me, who was a partner making hundreds of thousands of pounds in salary and bonuses. And I thought, if he can do it, then I can do it. So I think visibility of role models is a, is a huge thing uh, in terms of leveling up. And also there's that whole concept of one true connection. And I described that to you earlier uh, as basically exposing everything that makes you you to another individual any individual, your highlights, your lowlights, your traumas, your desired outcomes. And by doing that, they will either connect with you in a really deep rooted level and want to help you, or they'll pass you on to someone that might just share one of those facets. And over time, you keep on doing that and doing that and doing that. And you create like a spider web effect. It's basically compound interest for networking. And that creates identity capital that you can cash in for reward and then level up and use that for agency do you think your story would have happened if you grew up in an age without the internet that's a great question it's a great question no no i don't think it would because again it goes back to that visibility point i would only see people in my immediate circle 
and I would be like, well, they haven't travelled into the city and got a great job. Therefore, they belong in this small t- rural town. Therefore, I must sit within this small rural town. So I think, yeah, the lack of visibility would absolutely be detrimental to my to my um, success so far, I guess. And uh, the internet was the catalyst for that. Because I, I find it a fascinating conversation because I'm sure there are pockets of the UK that do not have great access to the internet, but the majority of the UK, and I know I'm generalising and people have to excuse my generalising, majority of people have access to the internet, whether it's at work or whether it's on a smartphone or whether it's at a local library and the internet connects us to literally everyone and everyone. Like if you want to follow a great person's content, you can, you just need an Instagram account. And for that, you just need an email and an email account is free. And I find that interesting because there's a huge narrative at the moment and rightly so the social media is playing a negative role in a lot of young people's lives. And it is to an extent, but we have, and I get that this is problematic for younger people because if I think back to when I was young, especially in your teenage years, you're kind of, I'm just going to say, you're trying to find yourself. You're trying to work out your identity. You're going through puberty. You like girls, but then you're thinking about your career and actually it's all up in arms and you're trying to impress people. You talked about kind of, um, people seeing you, recognizing you, uh, being important to other people. So you're kind of striving for that. And there's a lot of people on social media that appear in, important. They've got a lot of followers. So then they're emulating a lot of their behavior and their behavior is very materialistic. You know, not everyone, but there's a lot of influencers online living a materialistic uh, lifestyle because they can. They're getting given things for free. They're getting paid to go on holidays. And I know that because I've done that shit. I've been paid to go places and do things like I know how it works, but I'd like to think I'm pretty honest and transparent about that. And I'd like to think that we can all look at the ecosystem that we live in. And the Internet is a massive part of the ecosystem we live in and say, I can be in control of who I follow, what I experience and how that impacts my life trajectory. Oh, 100 percent. I have this kind of mental model every single time I touch my phone, every single time I open Instagram. And it usually takes about five seconds for it to kick in. And I just asked this weird subconscious question of intent or distract. My psyche does it automatically now. Am I looking for something? Am I trying to find a new opportunity? Am I trying to find a new person to liaise with, to level myself up? Or am I distracting myself from a trauma or a problem or a task that equally by resolving that would level me up? And that's been so powerful for me, Ben. And we speak about how we can... Um, I guess, look at content creators and realms that we admire to and, and follow their paths, but equally, we can do the same. One thing for me, lockdown has increased my visibility because I spoke to the Queen over Zoom, right? I would never have done that five years ago when we were working in these regional offices. My story involves me sharing this very story with the entire um, 18,000 colleague cohort that we have at KPMG, but I could only have ever done that through Zoom. But five years ago, we wouldn't have been meeting in a collective of 18,000, right? Mm. Um, so you can use that ecosystem. You can use the you can use social media to be social and increase your visibility. Um, and, and I think there's a huge kind of epidemic around underthinking, which is strange, right? We kind of talk about overthinking, how that causes great detrimental stress to an individual. And it does. We've all been there. But also 
underthinking might. And what I mean by that is that the way the algorithms work on social media right now, it popularizes trends. Like you may have seen on TikTok, there's popular dances, sounds. So people watch these trends and they all consume the very same content. And they're constantly hardwired to regurgitate these TikTok lines and things like that. But they're not, like, like I spoke about my high quality thought process map, they're not doing that. They're just consuming other people's content all the, all the time and not consuming their own thoughts and then not creating that identity capital, creating their own worldview and presenting that back to the world to give themselves credibility. So what I love about listening to you talk and the way that you share your wisdom, because for someone that's 23, you know a lot, you've experienced a lot, you articulate yourself well, and that's beautiful. And you need to keep going and doing that because you're going to be able to inspire a lot of people. But when I look at you and I look at the education system and I look at the support networks along around young people and how we as uh, positive or should be positive influences over young people, there just seems to be quite often this a big disconnect in and I, I know this because I'm an employer and I have employed many young people. Uh, I did employ a handful of people through the government's kickstart scheme during lockdown. And the amount of people that lacked real basic skills of just like articulating themselves, being hot on their admin, being able to stand up for what they believe in, having a sense of identity, I think there's just such a massive gap. And actually, for me, it doesn't matter what skill you want to go into. Like you referenced accountancy, that's the skill that you went into. Whether you're a good accountant or not, I don't actually give a fuck because what you do is you show will, desire, confidence, uh, inner strength, awareness, and they are the most beautiful characteristic characteristics for life success for being a good leader, for being a good parent. And society focuses so much on skill. You described the uh, story where your next door neighbor said, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I, I've just written a bit of a rant about this for social media. We use this word, what? It's like a thing that you aim to achieve rather than who, like, who do you want to be? <laughs> Once you start to talk about who, you start to talk about the person not a thing that they do that shapes their identity. And I and that's what I love about what we're talking about today, because I want people to be thinking like, yeah, what is my identity? Who shaped that? And am I in control of shaping a different identity? And really what skills are going to make me the best version of myself? And it's probably not another book on counting or not another book on nutrition. And that's why I love self-development books so much, because it's about self love that ben i love that i would love to just sit in on one of your application processes to watch you recruit a new member of staff so i, I think you'd align with what i'm about to say here for example people go to work to solve a problem not a problem within that organization but a problem that they're probably facing at home right but the way for example an apprenticeship is marketed is like join kpmg or join unilever join this multinational firm where you're you'll gain these skills you will be an accountant you'll be a nutritionist, you'll be a developmental scientist. Is that sexy for a 16, 17 year old who wants to be an apprentice? Probably not. But if you were to market the exact same job opportunities, such as you're going to learn these skills 
but you'll be able to buy a car. And that will get you to travel around the country and meet new people and have these experiences that you can come back into the organization and share with us. Or you're going to be able to buy a house for the first time. Or you're going to be able to travel the world. And you're going to get these skills. Imagine the uptake, especially from people like a background like mine, who have never experienced these things before. Imagine the uptake of talent that you would get if you uh, advertised apprenticeships like that. Because what people are doing, are they're trying to find themselves and by finding themselves, they go to university because it's a trusted approach and they can do all the social activity because it's sexy. University is still sexy, but apprenticeships and working isn't because of this kind of specific job spec that we, that we um, uh, deploy uh, in job applications. And not only that, I think the traditional interview is such a fucking flawed um, way to measure someone's capability in an organization, right? Because what it is, is it's a performance. You may as well present your Tinder profile because you're giving this short, short window to present these kind of flashy meta successes that you have, but you don't get, you don't touch the character, you don't touch the core. Um, so I, I think that's a very outdated uh, way to measure someone too. And, and the thing is when someone's from a background like mine, they're typically not a good performer. And I'll tell you why, Ben. A lot of the people that I got to speak with to with the work that I do come from either single parent families or families where the parents work shift work. This sounds bizarre, right? This is a really bizarre David McIntosh thesis, right? But listen to me here. That means that they, as a kid, didn't eat dinner with their families. And why does that count? Why does that matter? Well, as a kid, the dinner table's a stage. It's where the kids go and present their worldview. They talk about how great their day was or how um horrible it was or what homework they got and they could vent that out and present that worldview that they have but if they don't get the opportunity to do that within their childhood then they go into the workplace and they can't perform an interview then if they get past the interview through luck or through whatever they believe that got them through it they have this gratitude complex but what you actually see them do is follow that job spec that accountancy route or that that nutritionist technical role right and they go into very technical jobs where they hide behind the screen and do a lot of knowledge work but they don't share that with their cohort they don't share it with managers they don't present on it they just hide behind the laptop and type away and do the technical work but never perform it out with and why why is that important well we spoke to we spoke offline about this about how success isn't about performance it's about perceived performance an example that I'd like to bring to life is where there was a study where a bunch of uh, a bunch of novice and expert uh, piano uh, piano uh, critics watched two different videos of uh, uh, piano players. One was like audio and video, and one was video only. And I think there was three different players, and they asked these critics, "Who is the uh, expert piano player?" And in fact, you'd think they would lean on the audio file to understand, oh, these notes and this song, blah, blah, blah. But in fact, they were right most of the time when they watched the video-only footage because the expert piano player was doing this with their hands, flailing their hands up in the air. They were running up and down the, the piano because they put on more of a performance. Like, that's such a stark realisation of how we approach interviews and, uh, and workplace dynamics. I just think that's a perfect example that kind of frames what I was bringing to life there, Ben. I've got so many questions I want to ask and I'm writing 
down so many notes. Um, I find the university comment quite interesting because I've talked a lot about my experience of university in the past and how I feel it's defined so little of my career. Yet I left, I left university. Well, I say this, it defined a certain amount, but only because I took the very limited amount of opportunities that are on offer. So for example, I remember a time we were doing our second year. It was a sports coaching module. And the, the lecturer said, right, I've got an opportunity for two assistant strength and conditioning coaches at Hull KR rugby team. Big opportunity, the, the city's biggest team, like you'd be stupid. And I literally jumped out of my seat and put my hand up. And then no one else put their hand up. And then like 15 seconds later, another person sort of sheepishly put their hand up. And I was like, Jesus, I thought, you know, I was racing to jump to my feet because I thought everyone would be, you know, jumping at the chance as well. And if I hadn't got that opportunity, I wouldn't have experienced professional sport. I wouldn't have been able to rule it out as a career option because I didn't actually enjoy the environment because it's very restrictive in how you can actually perform your job. Um, it's also hard because like literally every weekend you're working, which again, didn't give me a, the sense of freedom that I wanted. And there was loads of other experiences, but I left university technical knowledge wise i'll probably learn 15 percent of useful stuff i left i left with 27 grand worth of debt which is a huge amount of debt literally finished paying it off last year so it's taken what like 10 years or whatever to pay it off um which again is a burden on your potential life experience life growth because you've got to pay that debt off um and we sort of see the university potentially and again this is how you navigate life i get it but we see university as something that will allow you to grow and it will. But what I saw is probably 95% of people literally went to university and found their crowd. So whether yeah. they were into hockey, netball, Warhammer, Warcraft, like whatever it was, they went and joined the club, found the people, and then they had a friend network of those 8, 10, 12, 15 people that already had the same interests. And I saw very few people actually grow from that because university is actually quite a protective environment. You're in a nice little bubble. You've got a loan in your bank. You walk to uni. You do a couple of lectures. You get fucking shit faced at the, you know, four or five days a week. And I'm like, it's actually easy. Like for me, uni was easy. Like it's not hard. Um, you just got to apply yourself, turn up to the lectures, which 80% of people don't. And I thought, if you really want to experience life, if you want to grow, if you want to be challenged, for me, and this is my experience as a, of an employer, I've seen a lot of really self-confident, able people not come through the university pathway because they've had to kind of be in the trenches a bit more. And it kind of feels like, I mean, you've done you know a bit of both, but it feels like you've kind of got that because you've had to learn these skills. You've had to develop the awareness. You've had to say, okay, I'm not from the best background here. So what skills are going to make me stand out and you've beautifully had the awareness to say cool right i better go and learn these skills because that's what's going to help me really thrive in this environment and get to know the right people ben as well um yeah. you, brought, you brought to life how you build a network of friends through university and that might sound like child's play it might sound quite juvenile everyone has friends but you can actually cash in those friends for reward it's called culture capital um, I think LinkedIn did a study where those from a less privileged background have like 11 times less of a social network than someone from um, mm. a more privileged background. And if you come from a background like mine where my uncle isn't in nutrition or my auntie isn't in law, 
um, or I don't have parents that went to university, then I can't, I don't know the route to entry for all these different careers. But by going to university and having friends whose parents may be a teacher or a doctor or whatever, I can then use them to leverage their networks, which is important. And bringing it back to like a more universal example, I think there's a famous artist called Rembrandt, right? And he notably painted uh, a painting called The Man with the Golden Helmet. And it went up for a sale for like, I think 30 million at auction. And the day before the auction, they found out that it was his disciple that actually uh, painted the picture. And it was like instantly devalued to like 500 quid. Mm-hmm. So it showed the network behind this piece was its value, much like the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa isn't a very significant painting, but the reason it's so valuable is because it was stolen three times and it's traveled all around the world and there's been mysteries with its location. It was the network that underpinned it that brought it its value. So in the organization that I work for now, I think my greatest skill is not being the smartest in the room, isn't learning these technical skills that we spoke about, but it's knowing what table I want to sit in and having that much of a network that I can find someone that will sit in that table and then going into that table and learning from that. And I I, I think it's easy to undervalue the social networks that you create at university, but again, I think there's a huge opportunity to cash them in at some point. Oh, definitely. Um, I suppose an interesting thought to tag on the back of that is stepping into these situations, whether you need to talk to someone, you need to ask for help, you just need to literally knock on doors, pick up phones, that kind of uh, hustle element. Uh, I read something this morning and uh, apologies to the source that I can't remember where I read it, but it was talking about how powerful it can be to have 20 seconds of radical courage and what it means by that is like if you're in an if you're in a situation let's say there's 30 people in a room and you can see on the other side of the room is someone that you want to talk to they're either someone you just want to know they're important they're your boss and you've never spoke to them like whoever it is it doesn't matter so you want to talk to them but most people will stand the other side of the room and go oh god you know, I don't know how to introduce myself. Like, am I going to fumble? Like, I've got to walk across the room. I'm not wearing the right clothes. My tie's not done up. Oh my! And you, you create, you know, a thousand reasons not to do the thing. It's like talking to a girl at a bar, right? 100%. As a guy. And how many people's lives would radically change? And it sounds like you've been in this situation where if you took 20 seconds of radical, crazy, beautiful, spirited courage and just marched across that room and said, hi, my name's X. And even if you fumble it out, the best thing you could probably do is make fun of yourself for fumbling it out and just say, oh, actually, sorry, I was really nervous about introducing myself because I really admire you. And then already you've disarmed that person because you've just been really fucking honest, which is beautiful. And there's a time that sticks out to me that defines my podcasting career. So I was at Body Power. And I wasn't yet a speaker in the lineup for Body Power. And I wanted to be a speaker. And I was there um, and I was in my branded gear and I was trying to just hustle and meet people and stuff. And there was this stage area where all the big US athletes had come over for the fitness industry gathering. And this theater probably had at least a thousand people in it. It was freaking huge. And with all these things, this is like an hour's thing. 
um, they pass a microphone around, right, for questions. And C.T. Fletcher was on the stage. Now, in the fitness industry, C.T. Fletcher's famous, he's brilliant, he's a character, you know, he's incredible. And I was like, I need to get this guy on my podcast. Like, it would make my podcast blow up. So I kept putting my hand up, kept putting my hand up, kept putting my hand up. And the microphone came to me and I just stood up with radical courage and I just went, hi, my name's Ben Coomba. I have one of the top rated podcasts in the UK. And by this point I was bullshitting because I wanted everyone in the room to hear, hear my name. And that meant a thousand people were already like, Whoa, hang on a second. Who's this guy? I might just get out my iPhone and have a little look. Um, I'm putting you on the spot here. I would love to interview you on my show. Uh, would you do this? And I just basically asked and he went, well, I can't really say no because you've just asked in front of a thousand people and had the courage to do that. Of course, I come on your show. And then he came on my show and it was one of the reasons my show blew up because someone with like a million followers on YouTube came on my show and it was uncomfortable. I was nervous. People were looking at me, but that's the level of courage that literally defines the 99 to the 1%. Fucking beautiful, man. That is beautiful. What a fucking story. You, you might have seen me like clapping and like smiling. <laughs> you that. I mean, that, that's, like, that, that um, lesson is so universal. And I, I mean, I have my own flavor of that. And, and this is the thing with the CT flexure thing. See if he did actually say no and rejected you in front of everybody. The amount that you would have taken away from that experience would be just as great as the experience of him saying yes and coming on your show. It would have created a callus of the mind. You wouldn't you would go on to the next opportunity and not be that scared for rejection because CT Fletcher rejected you in front of a thousand people. It's like cold water therapy. You've endured this whole embarrassing, physically exhausting moment in front of a thousand people. So your next rejection will be relative to that one moment. Mm. So even if he did say no, like it's probably just as powerful as him saying yes. And the beautiful thing, this beautiful article that you read this morning, I have my own thesis on this. I have this, um, this um, theology that I call assume attraction. And it's much like a date. If you go into a date, assuming that that person is instantly already attracted to you, then you're going to present your best self to them. You'll be confident. You have won them over mentally already. So you present exactly what makes you you to that person. But why can't you do that in business? Imagine you went to CT Fletcher or I went to a podcast, potential podcast guest and assumed that they already wanted on my show. Well, then I'd provide the value that that might provide to them. I would outlay the podcast with absolute certainty, with conviction. And probably more often than not, they would say yes based on that. And one thing that I've noticed with my show is it's not a ego-driven show for me it's not for me to go on and talk about me and w w my story which I, I don't do and this is the first time I've really shared my story in the public domain um I recognize that they also have that desire to feel important what I spoke about earlier so if you instead of getting someone to come on and speak about a specific technical um subject for example getting the founder of Reebok on to talk about merchandising I asked him to come on and share his story from all the kind of traumas as a kid, his working class background, all the way to retiring from Reebok and then creating his book. And that satisfied his desire to feel important because he wanted to share his story. No one had paid attention to young Joe Foster or old Joe Foster. They paid attention to Reebok Joe Foster. 
And just by combining both the desire to feel important and the some attraction technique, I can even get you, Ben. Like when I reached out to you on LinkedIn, I assumed that you were attracted to come on my podcast and for me to be a guest on yours. And I guess it worked. It did. But when you do that, it's like, uh, again, being in a bar with the opposite sex or the same sex. Um, you, if you back yourself, if you already think that, then you walk up to them, you're confident rather than like, oh, can I, can I buy you a drink? There's not many people that are like, you're, you're already a bit creepy. What's going on? Whereas if you stride in, it's like, you know, and I love this about um, Jordan Peterson and his book, The 12 Rules for Life. And he's dedicated a whole chapter to just basically stand up straight and own your shit. And it's like, stand up, chest out. And already it's like, oh, there's someone in the room rather than shoulders sloped, head forward, head down. You're, you're not drawn to that person. And when we think about human nature, you've talked about uh, wanting to be valued, people seeking power, security, wanting to be recognized. People will probably want to be around you if you're there, if you're taking up space, if you're exuding energy, if you're positive, if you're engaging. And they're almost like such simple characteristics that we overlook to get to the next place and actually build the social capital that you've talked about because people, you will build social capital by being a person that other people want to warm to. 100%. I've noticed that through the work that I've done at work because I've been this very verbose outward facing extroverted person on social mobility people are like well i care about that that cause and he he's pioneering right? so i want to be around him to get the opportunities that he's had for example speaking with the queen or on the podcast um another technique that comes to mind when you speak about that ben is gary vaynerchuk's jab 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 right hook are you familiar with it yep so for the listeners who, who may not be it's like provide someone value time and time again until they almost feel vulnerable enough to return it. And I had a, a recent experience um, uh, with a kind of podcast guest prospect. One of my favorite authors of all time, a gentleman called Rory Sutherland. He's the vice chairman of the multinational advertising agency Ogilvy. Uh, and he's also an author on behavioral science. And I've loved him way before I've ever recorded a podcast. And I've met, shot messages to him and his DMs on LinkedIn years and years ago. He didn't reply. I've spoke to his CEO, um, his counterpart, no reply. Um, I've tagged him in posts, no reply. But the one moment where he agreed to come on my podcast was when I sent him an article that reminded me of his work. And I said, Rory, this reminded me of you. And it was a keynote by someone at Google. And that's when he replied and said, oh, and you have a podcast. Um, let's get a call in the next few weeks and I'll come on. And it was when I provided him value that he felt vulnerable enough to return the favor. And it was so bizarre to see that unfold. Nice, nice. Um, I'm conscious of time. Uh, we've uh, we've set up a little dual recording for me to come on uh, your show. Um, one of the things I think I'd like to potentially end with with this conversation is uh, for individuals listening that want to embrace their own weirdness. We're all weird. We're all different. We've all got unique talents things that are beautiful about ourselves and there'll be people thinking to themselves listening to this well i don't you know and hopefully people aren't in a bad enough place where they're thinking that and hopefully there's a couple of things that if you sat down and closed your eyes everyone listening can think do you know what 
this is a unique part of me. This is where I bring greatness to the world or my family or, you know, whatever it might be. What advice would you give to people that need a little bit of support in embracing their unique weirdness? I think by, by embracing your weirdness, there'll be an initial feeling of imposter syndrome because you're not conforming. And I hate how imposter syndrome have the, has this kind of negative connotation wrapped around it. But if you're embracing your weirdness and you feel imposter syndrome, then you're doing the right thing because you're shipping something into existence that doesn't already exist. And why is that important? Because only you can. Only you are you. Only you can leave the legacy that you will. Only you have had the experiences that you've had. Only you have the exact, exact feelings around the passions that you're passionate about. And only you can reflect that onto the world. So I'd say um, just exactly embrace it for a start. And when you do get that imposter syndrome, then it's a, probably a signal from the world that you're doing the right thing. Love that, dude. Thank you. Um... And thanks for sharing your story. Keep going, keep speaking to people, keep inspiring, love what you're doing. Um, if people want to find out about you, they want to support something, what's the best link, resource, social platform to come and say hello? Uh, ben, thank you for having me on. This is a full circle moment for me. Absolute privilege to come on. And if people resonate with my story or want to get in touch, um, David McIntosh on LinkedIn, you'll find me there, or Development by David on Instagram or on any audio um outlets for podcasts thanks ben sweet well sir good luck in the future i'm sure we'll be in touch i think we've connected uh, quite nicely today um for everyone that's listening please do go say hello to david uh, online please if this show has impacted you and you think do you know what someone else needs to listen to this show then forward it to them send them an email send them a dm it's literally a two button process now with our smartphones to share great content with people and we've all talked sorry we've both talked on this show today the power of the right content to the right people at the right time in the journey and if you're listening thinking do you know what x person needs to listen to this just go and send it to them and i know this doesn't happen a lot because people listen to podcasts when they're driving when they're walking the dog and actually taking an action from listening to this podcast um is quite often just left because you just move on to the next thing or move on to the next pod podcast and maybe even pause this podcast right now to remind you that there's a minute left on the show and actually that minute left is a reminder for you to go and share it to that person that needs a story like this today please do that because that is going to help that person and hopefully next week we'll have another equally inspiring show david thanks again pleasure mate thank you and all that leads me to say is go and have an awesome day goodbye <laughs>